Have you wondered how we ended up in this mess? How we are experiencing this mental health crisis? Well, that's exactly what I'll be talking about today with my guest, Dr. Jody Carrington. Welcome to the Rising Strong Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Bame, and I'm so excited to dive into this topic. So let's get started. In May of 2023, I was invited to be a part of a panel discussion at a Stronger Together event in Regina. And as a bonus, I got to meet the amazing keynote speaker, Dr. Jody Carrington. If you don't know her, buckle up, because you are about to be inspired. In short, Jody is one of North America's top psychologists, is an author, speaker, podcaster, but above all, she is a woman on a mission to reconnect a disconnected world. Welcome to the podcast, Jody. Lisa, I want to take you on the road with me. That is like the best introduction of all time. I don't know about that, but I'm with you. I'll go on the road with you for sure. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. I like after we met, I, I've thought about you so much and uh, I know your work has inspired so many people. So I cannot wait to jump in. In your book, Feeling Seen, you indicate that we are more disconnected now than ever. Do you think this is the root of our mental health crisis right now? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, without without question. I, I often think about this, you know, even as parents, like we are the first generation of parents that um, have had so much inundation by social media. Like, so we talk about that, you know, the worries for our kids and all of those kind of things, but like we are the first generation of parents that have been just so overwhelmed. And I mean, the, the data is interesting to me. Like our, our great grandparents, it is estimated, looked at their children 72% more of the time than we look at our babies. And not because we don't love them less or more or any of those kind of things. We've never had this many exit ramps. And what I think is remarkable in this human race, like whoever made this human race, like whatever you believe that to be true, sort of came up with two rules, which said, I'm going to make two things happen. You're going to be neurobiologically wired for connection, right? You, dis- you disconnect from an infant, they die. We're neurobiologically wired for connection. But the other thing I'm going to do, I'm going to throw in the second rule, which is, the hardest thing you will ever do is look into the eyes of the people you love. Okay. So go ahead, go. And in the olden days, if you will, uh, we had so many more opportunities to look at each other, to do that hard thing that was always hard. We lived in smaller houses. We slept in smaller beds. We didn't have, you know, computers and phones and all those things. And so this thing that has always been hard to do to maintain connection and relationship with each other has been given so many opportunities to just make that easier not to do it. So I think one of the biggest issues, you know, we're facing a loneliness epidemic. We're in the middle of a a mental health crisis. And I mean, keep in mind, I mean, you and I are both in Canada, relatively well-resourced and safe and all of those things. We are killing ourselves at faster rates now than ever in the history of the free world. Domestic violence, child maltreatment, those numbers have never been this high. So it begs the question, why? And I really think it comes back to this idea that we were never meant to do any of this alone and we've never felt so alone. Do you think social media plays a role in this? As you said, our phones, our devices, our computers, you know, we're at everybody's beck and call 24-7, it seems. 
Oh my gosh. And, and have so much access to everything. I don't think social media plays a role in it. I think the way, well, actually I do the the way that we use social media plays the role. Mm. And I think we, we often sort of like vilify social media. I mean, the intention of technological developments in any generation is to, to make the world uh, a better, safer, more efficient place. I mean, because of technological advances, I mean, I, I hope that our cars are safer to drive. I hope that, you know, um, pancreatic cancer uh, isn't a death sentence in my lifetime because of technological advances. The issue remains how we use it. Mm-hmm. And if the problem, you know, if if one of the hardest things we will do is look into the eyes of the people we love, and this is one opportunity to to make that easier to sort of stay disconnected and safe away from the criticisms or the learnings of other people, um, we're going to take that. And I think we have... I don't think that was ever the intention of social media. I think that though the outcome is now our responsibility to figure out like, holy wow, in a very short period of time, this has become dangerous. And what do we do about that? Who? Do, what do we have control over? And so we can say all the time, you know, this is the government's issue or, you know, like that's the problem. But But really at the end of the day, all we have is you and me just trying to figure out exactly how we get ourselves in much more regulated states so we can continue to stay connected to the people we love. Absolutely. So the question begs to be asked, how do we do that? Well, I think, you know, first of all, you know, we, we always want to fix the, it so much faster, right? I think you can't address what you won't acknowledge. I think the cornerstones of mental health are two things. And this is, this is, I was listening to a podcast from Paul on Andrew Huberman the other day with Paul Conti, Dr. Paul Conti. And he said that the two cornerstones of mental health are this agency and gratitude. And even in the shittiest of storms, being able to understand what we have control over, what is our agency uh, becomes very internally focused. And so I feel like this is a bit of a sequential process, agency and then gratitude, and then it goes on a loop, okay? And so agency is like, we can get out of our heads and think like, what about why? Oh my God, this is so overwhelming. What do I have control over in this moment? You know, as I'm stepping into the holidays, do I, you know, do I have control over my mother-in-law? How do I respond to this? What do I do for my babies when they're really struggling? What is the, you know, whatever. What do I have control over? It becomes the most important question. And then how you switch to then this external focus of like the best parts of you really live in this space of gratitude and gratitude has sort of got this like overused rap, I think these days, but it becomes still the most important thing that we can do. I think um, is to sort of like, even when I get overwhelmed and I think about all the things that I don't have or, or couldn't do, or I'm missing out on, or I've lost being able to step into that sense of like, okay, in this moment, what do I have? allows you to get back to the best parts of yourself. And from that place, making decisions about, you know, whether you a simple, you know, charge your phone by your bed or you leave it in the kitchen, whether you choose to go for coffee with somebody or wave at your neighbor or do all of those things that require you to be physically present in your day and will make for stronger families and communities becomes much more accessible. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. I'm wondering, have we lost the skill of being social, thanks to the pandemic and a variety of other things? Yeah. So I, I think to your point, I mean, it, it, it is a skill. And just like any other skill, like your golf swing or, um, you know, whatever that looks like, you, you got to practice it. And the less opportunities we have to practice it, you know, 
taking our kids to the grocery store, you know, getting together as a group of people. Um, I think the pandemic expedited uh, that process, that disconnect in so many ways. Here's the thing that I think also contributed to it, right? We're the first generation of parents that have had this much access to social media. We used to love on the weekends to get together with our friends or, you know, come home at the end of the day and sink into our family because, you know, we'd worked apart or separate from or, you know, outside in the fields or we were alone in our kitchens or whatever that looks like. And in two generations, we're so inundated by data at the end of the day, we don't even want to talk to each other. The last person I want to talk to is my personal husband at the end of the day, because we're probably going to have to talk about something dumb that I'm going to have to do and I'm not interested in it. And I feel like, you know what I just want to do? I want to just like launder money in the Ozarks. I want to just disconnect from the world, right? If you're loving the show, I want to hear your feedback. Take a screenshot showing your five-star rating and that you're subscribed to us on Apple Podcast or are following us on Spotify. Then head over to the Rising Strong Podcast Facebook page. Hit the message button and send it my way. You'll be entered to win some Rising Strong swag. I will draw one name at the end of each month. Good luck and thanks for listening. As you're speaking, I just thought, you know, I don't know if I consider myself an introverted extrovert or an extroverted introvert, but I am very comfortable in my own skin being on my own. Mm-hmm. But I feel that over the last three years, I want to hibernate in my house almost all the time. Right. And I've recognized that is is actually getting worse. And I'm wondering if that's just me or if that is something that we're seeing across the board. Oh, I, I mean, I, I don't think that's just you. I think that I think everybody feels like that. And then it begs the question, like, why? And where do we then get refueled? Because mm-hmm. there, you can't automate relationship. Right. And and the more, you know, I think you've experienced in your life where, you know, it, it's it's life has become difficult for whatever reason. The energy it takes to just even connect with the world um, becomes more but oftentimes what happens is the more we struggle or the more, you know, we've experienced trauma or disconnect, we actually need healthy relationships and other people to help us navigate those things. We were never meant to do any of this alone. And yet I feel that sometimes it's instinct to pull within. Oh, yeah. I, it, like this is not to say, right, that that there isn't for sure solitude, reflection, you know, spending some time to do those things I, that that has always been necessary. Right. Like the exact opposite can be true. Like you just fill yourself so much with busyness and people and substances and whatever that is to try to avoid the feelings. It's like I think the question is, what are you doing in those times of solitude? Right. Is it is the intention to just refuel your soul so that you can engage with the people that you love and you lead and you laugh with? Or is it a complete and utter desire to avoid everything and everybody? And I think understanding the intention behind those two things really then direct whether it's it's good for our soul or it might just be survival. Right. Why are our youth struggling so much right now? You know, I I say this all the time, like I've assessed and treated over a thousand kids in our country and I've never met a bad one. Kids these days uh, have, have, are always, are as resilient and brilliant and probably even more inclusive and desire connection more than probably 
any generation that's come before them. The issue, I think, is the job of kids as they grow are to to make mistakes and be assholes and like that that's the only way you learn how to not. And I think when we are overwhelmed and lose our ability to just sink in to the people around us and navigate big, hard conversations, uh, because we don't have the time or the space to do that, uh, the generation that's going to suffer most are the people with the less prefrontal cortexes. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The ones who um, you know, need people to be present. And if we've never not been this present or this distracted or this disconnected, then the issue is the people who are suffer the most, and we've seen this, you know, in the post-COVID data, you know, that that sort of age range of 17 to 23 um, struggle so much because we, we've missed just the noticing, right? The going out to the grocery store, the family trips, the attending the funerals as a family, attending the weddings as a family. That's where you learn the shit. That's where you watch other people, right? We, we've talked a little bit about this and it, you know, I know just with, from the perspective of grief and mourning, you know, you're born with the ability to grieve. If you're old enough to love, you're old enough to grieve, but nobody teaches us how to mourn unless you watch other people do it, right? The more disconnected we are, right? The, the harder it is for our babies or the next generation, or even, you know, grandpas to understand how do we do it these days, right? And is it okay if we say the, her name? Is it okay if we all get to get, yes. Fuck, coming, come on. And if I stay away, if I want to avoid that, which is t- typically what we want to do when we're in pain, we avoid things, right? We shut in on ourselves. And, and that initial instinct is so normal and natural and even necessary. The issue is then what do we do next? And before I would say we had to gather because I couldn't phone you to talk about some things or I couldn't just text you or email you. I actually had to physically come to your house and be like, okay, what's the plan or what do you need? Or, you know, what are we doing next? And I, and I wanted to, because I didn't have any other way to connect to you. But now we assume in so many ways that just because I've sent you a heart emoji, you know, or we've talked about it, it doesn't replace the fact that I would just show up on an anniversary or a, a birthday or a whatever. N- not only doesn't, doesn't it land the same, there is a completely different physiological experience in your body when I just send you a note versus whether I show up with a coffee. Absolutely. I'm seeing this in my son as well. He's 23. Now, he was very fortunate that he had a job that he he worked right through COVID. I asked him last time he was home, I said, you know, what are your thoughts on the pandemic and mental health? And he looked at me and he says, you know what, mom? He goes, I know I was very lucky. I kind of had a normal life, just in the sense that, you know, he had a very small group that he would interact with and then his work. I also observe this generation, and I'm guilty too. You know, like you say, when was the last time I even phoned someone? Yeah. Talked on the phone. Right. I will choose texting or emailing first, hands down, all the time. And when my phone rings even, I go, oh, yeah. okay, I'll answer that one. Right. Yeah. And how do we get the opportunity to decide? I mean, like if I just think about, you know, in my generation or like this isn't 
like the good old days. This is like you and me. When the phone rang at our house, I don't remember as a child ever sort of making a decision or anybody ever being be like, don't get it. Don't answer that one because we don't know who it is. Right. Like before caller ID, you just you were curious. You were like, oh, obviously somebody needs to, you know, but now it's all like, don't do it. Don't. I can decide if oh, I don't want to talk to this guy right now or I don't want to whatever. Right. So that even, you know, that that agency or that ability to, to make those calls, um, you know, uh, I think further perpetuate that allowance. For sure. So one of the things that I love to talk about on this podcast is the whole idea of resilience. Uh-huh. Do you think that connection helps us become more resilient? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, here's the thing, like, I think resiliency is such an individual experience. And our context, the stories in which we come or walk through this world with, dictate so much of our ability to sort of, you know, decide how the world operates, how people operate within the world. And I think that most of the time, you know, none of us were meant to do any of this alone. And Oftentimes when we get in our own head, we tell stories about, um, you know, why we showed up or why this happened to us or why this person responded in this way. And and typically speaking, if we don't have anywhere to check that every once in a while, those assumptions, if we don't have anywhere to put those things every once in a while, they become problematic because we tend to be our own worst critics. We tend to be our own worst enemies. We tend to get, you know, stuck in stories where like, ah, this is how the people, obviously she doesn't like me. Or obviously this is, I'm a shitty mom or, you know, uh, my mother-in-law has told me that forever. So then that must be true. Versus when I have this conversation about like, no, just, just a second, like that could also be because the story in her head is, you know, whatever that is. I mean, it's a basis of therapy for me, Lisa, is that like, how do we check our assumptions and rarely can we do that alone? Very interesting. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I was just thinking, you know, like when we get stuck in our heads over like this happened or I should have, I could have, I would have, there's sometimes truth to, to all of those things. But again, it's the ability, I think, to then be, be able to check that every once in a while that allows us to heal or shift or move past something. And I just think about how critically important that is. And if it's so hard to look at each other and the opportunities to, to look away become greater, I just see like there's the issue. Do you think it's possible for people to go through trauma, tragedies, you know, life-changing situations and still come out and be resilient? Oh, yes, 150,000%. Because like, see, again, it's not what happens to us that is the issue. It's what happens inside of our bodies as a result of what happens to us that becomes the deciding factor on whether we, how, not whether, how we heal how we move forward, how our story of our life continues. Because it's not a question of whether bad things are going to happen or hard things are going to happen or difficult things are going to happen. It's when. And mostly it's about who we have to walk us through that, who we have, how we make sense of those things, what is in our world to help us navigate those big emotions that dictate this word resilience. So would that be an explanation then? Uh, why some people seem to kind of roll through horrific things and other people just struggle so greatly. Yeah. I mean, 
context is a prerequisite for everything. And so like, you know, people would often say to me at, when I, I worked at the children's hospital for 10 years on a lock psychiatric inpatient unit, and we would see some kids who seemingly have, you know, just quite a lovely story, um, but they were really struggling. And then there'd be another kid who like, you know, survived foster care and, and, you know, multiple generations of abuse and neglect. And, you know, they seem seemingly like we're doing better. And, and the question so much isn't about what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you that helps me understand our ability to then navigate the world. And even in some of the worst situations, you know, kids or people who have experienced unthinkable things, if there was somebody, uh, opportunities to walk through it, to navigate it, to be supported through it, to have a place to help make meaning. I mean, those are Kessler's words, you know, the five stages of grief, the, the sixth stage is always about meaning. And it doesn't mean it excuses or condones, but it assists in the understanding of. And that, I think, is really what's critically important in the human condition. I find people's stories of adversity just so interesting and so inspiring. And it seems like you say, sometimes the most unlikely person is shining the brightest. And I think, you know, why can't I be more like them? Or what's their secret? Yeah. A hundred percent. Like, and I, and I think sometimes we, we really just wonder about like, you know, how people did, did this or do this or survive, or how can you be so positive when, you know, you're in the middle of a, a cancer diagnosis or you've, you know, experienced whatever. Um, I do really think it, it is, it, it's who you have, what happened, what happened in that process? Who do you have in that, in your world? And I think all of those things, that context becomes so critical. The story, right? Very true. So let's, let's just shift gears here a little bit. I think we have a lot of parents who are listening to this podcast and I know I've been getting a lot of questions. How can parents support our kids in this age of disconnection and how can we bring them back to us? Yeah, I, I love that. I think, you know, part of the question always has been, and we're, we're not the first generation that has um, experienced this. I mean, if I think about every generation that come that comes before us, it's like, you know, innovation and, and technological changes. Like, you know, we thought the Beatles were going to be the death of everybody. And then Elvis and his hip swinging was going to be bad. And then all the pot smokers were going to kill the world. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when we want to stay connected to this next generation, it's, it's a very big task, but it's so critically important to figure out how they speak, how they learn, how they, how they communicate. And instead of trying to get them to do it the way that it's always been done, um, what do we know about TikTok? What do you know about pronouns? What do you know about vaping? What is the thing? And uh, they know the thing. And sometimes one of the biggest lessons, the greatest lessons I've ever been taught from my children. And I think it's like when I watch my kids with their grandparents, when I watch them, you know, having conversations about the residential school system or or pronouns or whatever that looks like and watching them wonder about those things um, is a place that I just I just love so much. And so I think I think so much of this is a meeting them where they're at. Right. And be on purpose because you're tired to really recognizing that if you're going to say you're off screens or everybody's phones down, then what are we going to do about that? instead what are our phones down are we in the place where we get to stay connected as well and i think about that all the time i say to my kids okay off 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 well i sit there on my computer or my phone and i think a lot of that comes down to how do we on purpose on purpose 
connect with each other, which requires things like charging your phone outside your bed, leaving, you know, going into a restaurant with your friends and family and leaving the phones in the car, like, you know, things like that. That's brilliant. I know after we lost our daughter, Katie, um, our son was 15 at the time. And I, I think being 15 these days is kind of a hard place to be on a good day. Um, but after we lost our daughter, connecting with with him, literally, we I felt like we had a five-minute window every day if we were lucky, and that was the supper table. And he started taking an auto mechanics class, which I know absolutely nothing about. But that was our ground of connection, and that was what lit him up. And I, I think that time in our lives really taught me so much about, as you're saying, meeting people where they're at. He didn't want to meet me where I was at because I was a hot mess. Yeah. You know? And and yeah. seeing your mom broken into a million pieces, you know, must be a hard thing. But when I met him where he was at, he ended up meeting me halfway. Um. And then that transitioned into going for drives because he thought I might need to talk, you know, and he loved to be in his car. He's a car guy. Yeah. Uh, Oh man. And being in the car with your kids is the greatest thing ever because as the driver, you sure as heck better not be on your phone. And when you're talking, you don't have to look at each other. Yeah. Right. And I think that's the issue, right? Is that it's, I mean, staring at each other is weird. Uh, but spending time physically present with each other, not, you know, watching our phone side by side, but when you're driving and having a conversation or listening to music or, you know, like, Hey, you know, what is your favorite Taylor Swift song? I mean, I'm now a huge Swifty because my daughter makes me sing everything that ever was. I, I like you, you, that's the point, right. Is, is really how do we stay present in the physical proximity with each other? Well, the interesting thing with my son is when he was still living at home, I would see that this is the way he would be with his friends. He would meet them where they were at. Yeah, neat. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's so a superstar. Yeah, he really is, you know, and, and you know, he's been through stuff that I wouldn't wish on anybody, but at the same time, he knows as well as I do that because he's been through that hard stuff, he can get through anything. And I think that that has been a gift, a gift that nobody expected to come out of a disaster. And I think also, I mean, if I can, I mean, I I haven't met your husband, but just a little that I get to, you know, spend time with you and watch you on social media and do all those kind of things. Like, I think that we should never, ever underestimate our ability to, to be, as present as we possibly can in our pain. And I think there is probably so much debilitating pain when we think about like what happens when you're in pain or you're in grief is you stop looking, right? Because you you physically have to deal with your own personal internal structure. You you can't give away something if you're absolutely broken inside. Like, like it's impossible, yeah? And so when you get that experience, our ability to sort of heal our own selves first, to be able to look inside, to even get us remotely well enough to be able to start to give it away again, or to, to check on our other babies or to, you know, look at our partners or to do all those things that becomes some of the most difficult steps. And even if we do that in small chunks, even if we do that in, in, in seconds, in milliseconds, 
that is where the healing lies because it is that transition from that internal locus to that external locus. And gratitude lives in that external focus, the reconnection, the, the hope, the little slivers as tiny and minuscule as they are of joy live outside of that. And so that shift and having something to want you to shift or to kick your ass enough to shift. As I just watch you, you know, be so connected to that amazing human. Uh, I know that, you know, he's so lucky to have you both. You know, I give him a lot of credit too, because he was the reason that I put my feet on the floor every day, probably for the first two years after Katie died. And, yes. you know, I thank God all the time because it forced me to figure out a way that I could carry grief in one hand and life in the other mm-hmm. and that they could coexist. Yes. And then I realized if I would have had a third hand that joy was in there too. Yeah. And when I was grieving, it didn't mean that I couldn't have joy and when I was, you know, dealing with my son or, or trying to parent didn't mean that I wasn't grieving and that all of these things could coexist in their own little way. And it was, it was just a lot of aha moments, if you will. You uh, know, grief has taught me a lot. Well, I, I, I love that so much because I think that we all play these roles, the griever and the grievee, oftentimes, at, you know, in the exact same moment. We are experiencing debilitating grief, unthinkable loss. And then the people around us are also experiencing that, whether because it's of the same loss or because they have their, like, nobody gets out of here alive. And that's the thing that just fucking knocks me on my feet all the time. Like, I can't believe that people lose people every day. Like, I can't, I can't believe that, you know, we lost my mother-in-law just suddenly, tragically, last January. And I remember being in those moments thinking like, how the fuck, like this was not the plan. How do people do this? Aren't you amazed at that, Lisa? Like, aren't you just like the people are walking around, like you are conducting a podcast, living your life and you had to bury your own baby. It's, it's remarkable to me (laughs) that in this human condition, we can love so deeply and lose so greatly and still live so fully. We are so much stronger than we think. You know, I remember literally laying on the floor in the days that followed Katie's accident, just thinking and swearing at God, saying all the bad words. Are you, are you effing kidding me? And yet, like you say, here I am. And I could list off dozens and dozens and dozens of people who've been through, frankly, far worse than me who are still standing, who are still shining. And it is also part of the human condition that we have that ability. Yeah. Yeah. It's remarkable. And nobody wants it. Um, And people say that all the time. Like, I don't want, I didn't want to have to do this. You know, when people say, I I think I've even heard you say this, you know, people are like, you're so strong. You're so amazing. Well, when you don't have a fucking choice, Mm -hmm. it's remarkable what you learn. And everybody intends to to be kind in those words. Like, I'm not saying like, you know, you should never say that to anybody. Like, I get why we say that to people and why, you know, people admire you for navigating things the way that you do or you have or, but I think it's like, it's also sometimes in this human condition, the ability to just really marvel at, at how incredible we are, how we were never meant to do any of this alone and to never, ever underestimate your power in a season of knowing that 
so many people, in fact, everybody you know, is in a state of grief or mourning. And if that's not a reason for kindness, for compassion, for, you know, seeking first to understand, man, I don't know what is. Oh, I agree. And I think sometimes it takes these awful tragedies and traumas to make you realize that we're all a heartbeat away from something going completely sideways in life. And we get into this comparative suffering place too. Well, like, I mean, at least I didn't lose a child or, you know, at least you're not in the middle of a cancer diagnosis or at least like we try to do all of those things, right? But like as hard as that is and as as, as I would never want to take away from anybody else, that, that doesn't get us anywhere, mm-hmm. right? We just honor the spaces that that we're each respectively in and just knowing that it will be regardless of how hard it is or what that looks like for anybody, it will be so much easier if we're in it compassionately and together. I think you're right. I think the way we approach things is is what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a clinical psychologist, I'd be really curious about how you think grief and disconnection are related. Oh gosh, I feel like you know the answer to this question. Okay, so I'm going to take the, I'm going to take you back to labor, okay? What happens when we are in labor? is that there is a necessity, well, not even labor, but okay, so I'm going to just use labor for a minute. But like when we're in so much pain, what we tend to do is shy away from it, okay? Or clench or avoid or go undercover, okay? Now, the initial response is so brilliant from a neurobiological, even survival perspective. You should shy away, cower from, back away from the pain. Like if, if somebody's going to kick you in the teeth, you know, it's a good idea to just be like, you know, try to back away versus like, yeah, just give it to me. Now, once we hit that initial response from the body trying to protect itself, either emotionally, physically, whatever that pain looks like, the healing often happens when we sink into it when we actually don't avoid it, okay? But rarely can we do that alone because our body has now understood that this is so fucking painful and that the thing I need to do is just avoid it or shy away from it or clench significantly to try to get away from it, okay? What I I always think about this in labor is that like when that first contraction comes, now you can think about this all the time. Before the labor starts, if anybody's ever been in labor, you can be with me. If you haven't, you can imagine it'll work the same. Before you practice this shit called Lamaze or breathing or like you get a dolphin and assisted pool birth shit and you make a birth plan and you're all, we're going to just breathe through whatever. And you even practice the breathing. You do all the shit. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but what happens in the first contraction when that first motherfucker comes along and just punches you right in the vagina, what happens to the breathing? Out the freaking window. Right? So we know all day long what we should be doing in the moment and we can practice it as much, but when it hits, when it hits, there is no preparation for it. Now, it is often helpful to do some work before so your body knows what it feels like to be relaxed. All of those kind of things are are not for not. But often what is necessary in that moment in things like emotional pain or physical pain is having the reminder 
either in your own internal mechanisms that you've built in, which are usually not accessible, or a village of people or a person or a community or a something to remind you about the importance of just sinking, of just going in. And so I can tell you when I was in labor with my son, I had the most incredible midwife because I'd be goddamned if I was going to listen to my husband who was like, Jody, look at me. I was like, oh, I'm going to rip your wedding ring right off your finger and shove it. And this midwife, God bless her, was the best thing that ever happened to me. So could grab my hands, could look at me and could say, okay, I want you to open everything in your body in this moment. We're going to get that baby, that pain to go as smoothly and as gently to us as we can make it happen. I need you to help me with that. So it's going to hurt and you're going to want to sink into it or you're going to want to shy shy away from it. But what I really want you to do to the best of your ability is to sink into it. And it's going to be hard and it's not going to feel even right. But I promise you it will will make this process easier. And she probably said it way more articulately than, than that. But I can tell you, for for so many reasons, it was it was a beautiful experience for me. Our, our twin birth was a completely different story, but I attribute so much of that ability to have that experience with her walking me through it, and I feel like that is so true with grief. The problem with labor and grief is labor is the celebration of you get something great on the end of it if everything goes well, yeah. Yes. Grief is the exact same process, but people are so fucking scared of it because what is the end goal, right? How do we ever, ever get through this? How do I, we, we cannot bring Katie back. We cannot do that. So we avoid also, you know, those of us experiencing it, but those of us around it. So it makes the process of navigating healing, if that's even a word we want to use, of of creating a, a story around it that allows us to live again or be in this world now with this other chapter that is a part of our story in any way that is imagining that it could even be better than it was before, that you're, you're the the last years of your, the, the next years of your life could be equally as good as those with you know, our loved ones in them, you know, is that a possibility? And I believe that to the core of me that it is, it is so hard to do because our instinct, our safety is to clench, is to avoid, is to not put ourselves in positions where we have to see the pity in the eyes of other people where, and it's sometimes even, you know, altruistic. We, we don't want other people to have to feel bad. Or it gets into a place of hate where we're like, you fucker, you got your kids and you can't even come over and say Merry Christmas to me? Get bent. I'm not even going to go out. Okay. And the result, I think, sometimes is survival and is necessary. The long-term effect, I think, is it becomes very difficult. The anticipatory anxiety becomes even more debilitating than the grief. 100%. I see this all the time, you know, because, you know, the first couple of trips to the grocery store. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Hope I don't see anybody. Oh, my God. There's my neighbor. Oh, my God. I haven't talked to her yet. If you'd like reminders when new episodes of the Rising Strong podcast are released, make sure you're on the notification list. You can find that at bit.ly slash rising strong updates.
That's bit.ly forward slash rising strong updates. Now, back to the show. I've always said that feeling is healing. There is no way forward until you lean into that horrible, uncomfortable stuff. Mm. Mm. Again and again and again, right? Like, and that's the issue. It's not an, uh, an end game. And I, I, I mean, how would you answer this question when I would say like, you know, does, has the intensity and the frequency of that feeling of grief changed for you since day, since moment one? Absolutely. It has. I think the best analogy I've heard was actually out of a dad's mouth. And that was now president Biden. He compared the loss of his son and the grief he experienced to waves. And he said, you know, at the beginning, it's every wave is pulling you under and you're crawling to get back up for air and you barely get a a breath and you know another one sucks you down another one sucks you down and he said it changes because those waves still come but they're not as intense usually and when they do come they're farther apart and he said it much more eloquently than that that is exactly what it's like I will grieve Katie as long as I walk this earth, but I don't fall to my knees like I did. I can have great days. I can go on holidays with my husband. I can go to parties. I can go to barbecues and have a phenomenal time. Yeah. I never forget her. I never forget my grief. Yes. But Grief does change. And I, I really honestly can't think of a better word to use than just change. I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah, I love it. And I think I think so oftentimes too, it's like we would just like to erase it or wish it never happened or all of those things. And I think, you know, again, that that is so natural and normal. And it's like that step of sort of integrating it into the story that you never wanted to be a part of your story. That's where the intensity and the frequency decrease. Mm-hmm. You know, those waves, as you say, I love that concept of the waves. I would do anything. And I mean, I'd put myself in jail if I could do anything to have my daughter back. Yeah, I would do almost anything to have avoided that physical, mental, emotional pain and to see it in my husband and my son. But I also know that the growth I have experienced all comes from that pain. Yes. And that I am so grateful for. Katie still continues to give me gifts in her death. As crazy and bizarre as that sounds. That is not crazy or bizarre at all. That would be the whole purpose in when I think about the sixth st- stage of, of meaning. Like, I cannot fathom why one of my best friends on the planet had to end her life at 44 when she's just had her two babies she's waited for her whole life. I don't, there's no concept in my life that that makes sense if I stay stuck in that place. And when I watch, what has happened as a result of how many times I've spoke about her, how many times people have spoke to me about her when I watch her babies and, you know, all of these kind of things, then, then it, it has to mean something. 
I think. And it takes people sometimes a lifetime or, or never to get there. But but I think their her legacy, her ability to continue to to influence the world, um, better live forever. And that's my hope for me. That's my hope for you, right? Is that there is this place where that continues to happen. And and I I, I believe that to the core of me about your little girl. I mean, I, I never got to meet her, but I feel like I know her. I just, even, you know, when we got to present together in the room that day, like there was not a question to me that she was there cheering her mom on. Like it was just, it was so phenomenal to just see what she has um, now because she's only always an inch away from you moved you to do. And, and in and of itself, I mean, that, that alone is, is, is it, that alone is enough. Like that alone is, is phenomenal. Right. Yeah, I, I do feel so grateful. And I do feel so fortunate that she is still a part of my life. Oh, yes. Always in always. Yes, always. Jody, you are a one in a million woman. Thank oh. you so much for sharing your insights and expertise on relationships and connection today. You are a blessing. I loved it. I loved every second. Thanks for listening, friends. Remember to stay well and be resilient. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.